Thousands of years ago, the prophet Zechariah foretold that the once revered city of Jerusalem would again shake off its dust and be revived in peace and security. He predicted it would be a seat of international influence. Well, that very specific prophecy has been unfolding for decades now, but seeing it for yourself makes it all come alive. That's the conversation we'll have coming up on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to this unique one-hour flyover of the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and Charlie, you and I are looking forward to more than a flyover. Oh, John, we are. Uh, The bags are packed. I'm ready to head out. Uh, We're now days away from that trip to Israel. All right, looking forward to that. And our next current events segment will come from Israel as we're there traveling in the land. But let's look right now at current events for the last week in the region. Story number one, the deadline for Israel's government to pass a fiscal budget is now just two weeks away. Why is it so important for the new government to pass a budget in that time frame? And what happens if they fail? Well, it's actually important for two reasons. First, one of the major attacks that was leveled against Benjamin Netanyahu was his failure to pass a budget toward the end of his time in office. They, they really haven't had a budget in about three years. The new coalition said it would do better. So the pressure is on them to make good on that promise. But the second reason they need to pass a budget is that if they fail to do so, by law, the coalition dissolves, triggering new elections. Mm. Technically, they have until November 14 to pass a budget, but realistically, the vote needs to take place by November 10, since the full Knesset normally only meets Monday through Wednesday. Because the parties in the current coalition want to remain in power, it would seem to be in their interest to keep the differences to a minimum until the passage of the budget. However, the coalition is so diverse that it's already started to fray around the edges. A week ago, the Islamic Ra'am party threatened not to support the budget unless funding promised to Arab areas but withheld by ministries controlled by right-wing members of the coalition was released. Well, that conflict has apparently been resolved, but it was followed by controversial comments made by Yair Lapid at a memorial event for the assassinated Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin that offended the right-wing members of the coalition. Uh, right now, it looks like the coalition will manage to survive and pass a budget, but it could be a short-lived victory. Several controversial pieces of legislation have been postponed until after the budget is passed, but they're certain to be introduced later. And the details of the coalition agreement state that Naftali Bennett would remain prime minister if the government falls before a budget's passed. But Yair Lapid would become interim prime minister should the government fall after a budget's passed. Hmm. So the passage of the budget could also set the stage for an interim government that would be likely led by someone from the left rather than the right. In the midst of all this controversy, John, watch to see how Netanyahu and the Likud party respond. They want new elections, and that opportunity to return to power, they may just have it sooner rather than later. Is it your sense that they will, in fact, pass a a budget deal, or do you think uh, it's just as likely as not? I think it's likely that they'll pass the budget deal, but it is amazing how many of the different party members are so frustrated with the other members of the coalition uh, that they are sniping back and forth at one another, and uh, it would only take one uh, misstep to really bring down the coalition. But right now, I think they're going to try and hold it together. All right. Well, both Israel and Iran seem to be doing a great deal of saber-rattling right now. Could the two be getting close to open conflict? Yeah, knowing when or even if a war is going to break out between Israel and Iran is something that only God knows. But both sides have been rattling those sabers. 
Israeli finance minister Avigdor Lieberman said a confrontation with Iran is only a matter of time. And then he added, and not a long time. Hmm. Israel's defense budget, which was approved by the government, includes an additional $1.5 billion earmarked for a potential Israeli strike against Iran's nuclear facilities. The money is said to be used to purchase advanced systems, including additional aircraft and bunker-busting bombs. And the head of Israel's military has ordered their air force to train specifically for a possible attack on Iran following a two-year pause in such drills. He also acknowledged that Israel was updating its operational plans for just such a strike. And in an apparent show of solidarity with Israel, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken told Yair Lapid that every option will be on the table should the nuclear deal with Iran not be revived. Now, for its part, Iran conducted its largest ever air defense exercise and announced it's ready for any threat from the U.S. or from Israel. Hmm. Iran also announced several new weapons systems, though it's not clear if the systems are actually operational or just additional propaganda. Now, in spite of all the rhetoric and planning, though, neither side apparently wants a conflict right now. Iran is hampered economically, and any successful attack on its nuclear facilities could dramatically set back both their nuclear program and their economy. Israel knows that an attack on Iran's nuclear facilities would also likely trigger a response from both Iran, from Hezbollah, and even possibly the Houthis, who would uh, have drone and rocket attacks on Israel's military bases and civilian infrastructure. And the U.S. administration doesn't want to be drawn back into another conflict in the Middle East as they're trying to pivot to face Russia and China. Right. So in spite of all the saber rattling, at least in the short term, it would seem that all sides hope to avoid conflict. But all it takes is one mistake or miscalculation and events could spiral out of control very quickly. And it does seem very, very fluid. Like, as you say, anything could happen at any time almost. That's right. That's why only a prophet knows if they are tapped into God and we're not mm. prophets. You're listening to The Land and the Book. We're not prophets. We are Dr. Charlie Dyer, Middle East expert, and I'm John Geiger, along for the ride here. Story number three, recent reports suggested that scientists have finally discovered the location of Noah's Ark using 3D scans. How accurate are these reports, Charlie? Uh, I wish they were true, but I'm frankly very skeptical. Now, I believe in the historicity of both Noah and the Ark, but I have doubts about these reports. The researchers claim to have uncovered a man-made boat structure beneath the surface using 3D scans of ground-penetrating radar and electrical resistivity tomography, or ERT. According to the team, the formation identified in the scans matches the dimensions of the Ark as found in the book of Genesis. Now, the problem comes when you dig beneath the headlines they didn't actually uncover physical evidence of the ark. Hmm. Rather, they said the data shows parallel lines and angular structures 8 to 20 feet below the surface. Now, this is the same area where Ron Wyatt claimed to have discovered evidence for the ark several decades ago. Those claims were systematically refuted in an article in the Journal of Geosciences Education, which said the so-called discovery was nothing more than natural rock formations. So the bottom line is that there is no new physical evidence to prove that what's below the ground is actually the remains of the ark. The ark could perhaps someday be discovered, but until hard physical evidence is uncovered, I'm just skeptical of the claims now being made. Hmm. Well, a rare amethyst seal discovered in Jerusalem illustrates one of the plants used in the temple. How significant is this discovery, Charlie? 
Well, I think it really is an important discovery for several reasons. You know, first, finding a seal that was perhaps part of a ring from the second temple period is always exciting. But even more, finding a carving on the seal, connecting it to a plant that was used to make the incense offered in the temple, makes it really quite unique. The plant on the seal is the biblical persimmon plant. Now, that's not the same as the orange persimmon tree people might be familiar with today. The biblical persimmon is what we know in the Bible as the balsam tree or the balm of Gilead. Uh, The plant produced an aromatic resin, which was one of the ingredients used in the anointing oil of the priests. In the Bible, the Queen of Sheba brought a great quantity of balsam as a present for Solomon. During the second temple period, balsam was used to produce temple incense, perfume, and other balms and medicines. So why was there a carving of this plant along with a bird on this tiny seal? The archaeologists suggest that the carving on the seal likely identifies the owner as someone connected with the growing and production of this very expensive spice. The production and trade of balsam was highly controlled, with the plant being grown down in the Dead Sea Basin area. Uh, The seal itself was discovered near the Western Wall, suggesting its owner would have been Jewish. Uh, This is the first time a seal has been discovered anywhere in the world containing an engraving of this particular plant. The seal might be very small, but the beautiful coloring of the amethyst, coupled with that rare carving of the balsam plant, really does make it an amazing discovery. Charlie, we're looking forward to a full program today. Up next, this conversation about Jerusalem rising. You know, thousands of years ago, the prophet Zechariah foretold that the city would again shake off its dust. That's a conversation coming up with Doug Hershey. And then it's questions and answers, but you're also going to have a devotional for us later on. That happens to be a particular favorite with many listeners. Where are we going today, and what can we expect to find along the the journey? Uh, You need to grab a cheesesteak, John, because we're heading to Philadelphia. Well, not that Philadelphia. (laughs) We're heading to the Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, the sixth of the seven churches in Jesus' message to those seven churches. We'll look forward to that. And while you're uh, chowing down that uh, Philadelphia cheesesteak, check out our website, thelandandthebook.org, where you can find information about today's program, past guests, and a link there to other great resources as well, thelandandthebook.org. Up next, Jerusalem Rising, a conversation with Doug Hershey, right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Thousands of years ago, The prophet Zechariah foretold that the once revered city of Jerusalem would again shake off its dust and be revived in peace and security. He predicted it would not only become a center of thriving life and a seat of international influence, but also the place where God himself will return to dwell. That very specific prophecy has been unfolding for decades now, but seeing it for yourself, well, that has a way of making it all come alive. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you to a conversation that will remind you that God always keeps his word. First, this thought on sharing Jesus more effectively with a Jewish friend. You know, for some of us, the biggest obstacle in reaching out to our Jewish friends is that we say we don't really know anyone who is Jewish. But is that true? Let's talk to Cynthia Stroll, who serves alongside her husband at Olive Tree Congregation in Chicago. What do you think? Is that true? Or or maybe are we overlooking some things, Cynthia? 
I think sometimes we put ourselves in the holy huddle. We're very content in our church and our little community, and we're oblivious to the fact that there are Jewish people all around us. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone at the store. It could be someone that you interact with regularly, but you really haven't considered that they're Jewish. And that I think the first thing is to pray and say, Lord, help me see. Help me look Mm -hmm. around and notice who you want me to talk to. And then you seek to be intentional in terms of Establishing a relationship with that person and being outgoing, but also being able to ask them more about themselves. What's their story? Okay. And and maybe in the case of someone at a store that you frequent regularly, it's just a matter of making that visit more regular and more intentional as you shop. Right. And being aware of Jewish holidays and, and special times in the Jewish calendar to acknowledge that and to celebrate that with them, that will be surprising and touching to a Jewish person. They're not expecting it. And I like the point you made earlier about uh, just starting this as a friendship, you know? I mean, that's that's where it's it's got to begin. It's all relationship, isn't it? That you want to have a relationship yeah. with people and just reach out to them on the basis of your care for them. And it's really based on what the Lord's done for you. Thanks, Cynthia. Appreciate those insights. It's so fun. Thanks. Whether writing or speaking, Doug Hershey shares from a perspective of historian and storyteller. His personal accounts of present-day Israel, the Middle East, and the awakening of Bible prophecy are as intriguing as they are rare. Doug is also the founder of Ezra Adventures, an Israel-focused travel company based out of Portland, Maine. When he's not in Israel, he's speaking at churches and synagogues and universities. It's a pleasure to welcome back the author of Jerusalem Rising to the Land and the Book, Doug. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. You know, it's easy to uh, spiritualize prophecies, to sweep them all together into one giant pile of gooey Bibleness. But Doug, Zechariah is about a very specific prophecy whose fulfillment can be seen and touched by regular folks just like us. Can you point us to one or two aspects of this grand prophecy about Jerusalem that kind of sets the stage? Yeah, Zechariah 8 uh, is a stunning portion of, of Scripture where God says, uh, I'm, I'm jealous for Zion, and I'm going to return to Jerusalem to dwell with my people. And it goes on to say that that uh, old men and old women will, in their old age, will dwell in safety, and children will play in the streets. And towards the end of the chapter, it talks about nations flooding to Jerusalem. And while there's always been some element of, you know, uh, periods of peace and safety, you know, there's been dramatic changes in Jerusalem since, not only since 1948, but especially since 1967, when Jerusalem again becomes Israeli sovereignty or Jewish sovereignty for really the first time in thousands of years. And so there's things that are playing out today that historically have never happened before, and it's very clearly written in the in the pages of the Scriptures, specifically in some of these words in Zechariah. Okay, so we all have a copy of the Scriptures, including Zechariah, but you somehow became swept away by what you read. Can you recall that moment when you said, hmm, there's something to this I've got to pursue? Yeah, I remember being... Uh... I mean, this this has been a, a lifelong thing for me. I, I guess I, I remember being in my late teens and and in the scriptures and suddenly having a, a light bulb moment, if you will, of realizing, wait a minute, the Jewish people and Israel in the Bible are the same bloodline as the Jewish people and the nation of Israel today, and that really began to pull together. And from that point on, there's just always been this love and this desire uh, in my heart, especially as uh, as a believer in the Lord. 
um, this is his family. Jesus is Jewish. Jesus's disciples are Jewish. And, you know, I, I wanted to get to know Israel and the family of Jesus to better understand him. And so it all, for me, it all sort of rolled into one. You teamed up with uh, adventure travel photographer Eden Rahm to move us beyond just talking about, but actually seeing the prophecies that are being fulfilled. Uh, I, I'm sure when people first read the prophecies of Zechariah, they could never have imagined the power of a photograph, but uh, they show us landscapes and details that come together and tell the story. What was your favorite part of working together on this? A lot of it was just really treasure hunts. Part of what we did in Jerusalem Rising is we have some of the oldest photos of Jerusalem ever taken, going back to 1844, 1850s, 1860s, and we hunted down these exact locations to recreate those angles as close as we possibly could, just to show how much the city revived. And the amazing thing here isn't just that you know, like it's a then and now book and the city's reviving, it's, there's no other city on earth that has had its history foretold from its destruction to its desolation to then as a, as a revival as an international city and eventually a seat of power for a ruling king uh, that, that we're all, you know, looking forward to. There's, there's no other city that has that type of prophecy laid out. So for me, the exciting thing wasn't just simply, you know, doing some photography, although that was great. A lot of the hunting down the old photos, it was very much like a treasure hunt, you know, looking for that X marks the spot. But being able to sort of in a, in a much larger scope, recognize here's a season in time where we're able to begin documenting the fulfillment of Bible prophecy in a way mm. that we just haven't had an opportunity before. Doug Hershey is the founder of Ezra Adventures, an Israel-focused travel company based out of Portland, Maine. When he's not in Israel, he's speaking at churches and synagogues and universities, and he's the creator of Jerusalem Rising. Uh, this book is a fascinating collection of A-B photo comparisons. On one side of the page, we see a Jerusalem street or neighborhood that goes back, you know, perhaps more than a century, and then right next to it is the identical scene from today. Uh, the cumulative effect of looking at all these images feels like a spiritual karate chop when you realize <laughs> that you are seeing God's prophetic hand at work. Doug, did you get this same sense putting the book together, or do all the details just absorb you into the larger project? Uh, yeah, I mean, this, it was very much of a spiritual journey. I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly it's my work, and it's something that I enjoy, but there were just moments where I kind of had to pinch myself going, okay, here I am in Jerusalem, and not only just enjoying the city, I mean, Jerusalem is, is, is different than any other city on earth, just simply because God says so. Mm -hmm. So in Ezekiel 5, 5, God says he's placed Jerusalem in the center of the nations. In the book of Psalms, he says that I have chosen to dwell in Zion, and this is the place that I'm going to live with my people, and, you know, we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So just simply being in the city is significant, but to be able to recognize that for the last 2,000 years, the city has been conquered and reconquered and, you know, completely destroyed a few times and attacked, you know, 60, 70 different times as the city of peace, you know, and, and it never becomes a homeland or a capital city or a significant city for any other people group except mm -hmm. the Jewish people. And now God is restoring all of those things exactly as he said, down to the detail. And so this whole process for me was, again, just wasn't simply, a, you know, creating a then and now book, but it was something significant. I'm going, wow, we are living in a unique moment in time. 
Some of the photos that you compare and contrast date back, as you've said, to the 1840s. How did you get access to these old photos? I mean, you know, I could see them being printed in some old book, but, you know, how do you get access to scan a photo? Uh, well, some of them, uh, ironically, for photos that are over 100 years old, it's public domain. And so with those photos from 1844, uh, those actually weren't known about until 2003. And then the, and then the, uh, the Smithsonian published some of those photos from 1844, and they're called a, a daguerreotype style of photography, where it's these actual copper plates that are covered in, in silver, and there's, you, know, you use iodine and all sorts of you know, mercury vapors and such before you expose it to light, long before film was actually used. So this is like early days of photography, and mm-hmm. these photo plates... It's a much longer story that I write in the book, but these photo plates were kind of like hidden away and like sort of like God's time capsule in a way. And they weren't discovered, at least on the public stage or the world stage until 2003. And then the Smithsonian gets a hold of them in 2014 to publish some of those. And so because they're, you know, what, 170 some years old. Uh, you know, there's there's no one to ask for permission. You know, I mean, there's you know, so those those photos are, are public domain. So it's actually it was a little bit of an easier process than um, mm. than some people would expect. But you know, we did get some permission from the Israeli Antiquities authorities to use certain photos and and uh, the American Colony Collection out of uh, out of Jerusalem. Of course, there was um, some different permissions, but yeah. but it was just a matter of of finding some of my favorites and uh, compiling them and and sorting them out and then making the plan to go to go shoot the angles. Okay, so here you are recreating modern-day versions of these uh, very old photos. Uh, that's nice, but Jerusalem is a very complex, very political city. You can't just barge into any old place and take a picture. What kind of difficulties did you have to overcome? What's a favorite story that comes to mind? Yeah, Eden Ram is, uh, he's an Israeli. So, you know, Israelis are, are very uh, forward and very direct. And so, you know, it's uh, the, the attitude we, we had was sort of, um, you know, it's it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. I mean, that was part of the fun, really, was not only just finding the locations, but figuring out how do we actually get in there? We only need two or three minutes. How do we actually get in there to, to take the shots, you know, and get out before, you know, we have any problem? So that was part of the fun. How long did the shoot take? The actual shoot only took about five days. We tracked it on an iPhone as far as how many steps we had. We averaged about nine miles a day. So we walked a lot. Mm. We walked up and down the Mount of Olives and all over the old city and down the Kidron Valley and up hills. And I mean, when you're looking at photos, it just looks like some rolling hills in Jerusalem as far as the landscape. But then you get there and you really start walking around and you go, wow, there's... There's a lot of steps. There's yeah. a lot of hills. There's a lot of uh, a lot of stone. A lot of concrete. But it was a it was a lot of work, a lot of walking, and um, and a really intense five days. Doug Hershey is the creator of a stunning new photo comparison book, Jerusalem Rising. How can we avoid keeping this book as a mere curiosity collection, a coffee table book, as opposed to something that would point us to prophecy and God Himself? There is no other people group in history that has had its history foretold uh, from, you know, what was going to happen to the people and the scattering and for them to come back to the exact same piece of land as an identifiable, recognizable people. That's that in and of itself is unique. But to have that whole process foretold, it's an anomaly in human history, not not the Romans or the Greeks, the Chinese or the Persians. There's no people group that has anything like that except the Jewish people. And it's all written in our scriptures. And so Mm -hmm. what we're able to do is instead of reading Bible prophecy like an allegory or a metaphor or something mystical that maybe, you know, an abstract concept that maybe one day we'll understand, we're finding that the Bible actually means exactly what it says. 
uh, when he says that children are playing safely in the streets again. That's one of the things I do when I take groups there to Israel. We walk through the old city and we'll get to the Jewish quarter and I'll sit down and I'll read that portion while the kids are running around screaming, acting like kids. And (laughs) clearly not that uh, kids never lived in Jerusalem before now, but there's an element of safety and security in Jerusalem in the last 50 years that historically is really rare, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. in the last 17, 1800 years. And when the book of Zechariah says that nations will flood to Jerusalem, Prior to COVID in 2018 and 2019, those were the two largest tourism numbers in Israel's history ever. In 2018, it was over 4 million visitors. In 2019, it was 4.5 million visitors. So in the last, really in the last 2,000 years, never before have the nations begun flooding to Israel and specifically Jerusalem as they are right now. And so this isn't just simply like, you know, here's a Bible verse and I'm going to take some pictures and maybe kind of abstract tie it together. Historically, there are things that are happening right now in Israel, and specifically in Jerusalem, with its restoration, that haven't happened since the time that Zechariah spoke these things, you know, 25, 2600 years ago. And so to be able to tie those things together in a very visual way is, is really part of the series, first with, with my first book, Israel Rising and now Jerusalem Rising, to be able to document this process in a way that hopefully, you know, it's heart stirring and um, leads people back to the scriptures to study in and go, okay, what exactly did God say? And and is God being true to his word? Is he doing exactly what he said? Is he mm. faithful? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answers of those things are yes. And to me, that's what the book is about. It's not even so much about documenting a city, but here is something that God spoke to us 2,600 years ago. And look at the faithfulness of God. He is doing exactly what he said he would do. And that's, for me, that's been part of the, of the whole overall vision. Historian and storyteller Doug Hershey has created Jerusalem Rising. Thanks for your visit, Doug. Hey, this has been great. I'd love to do it again. Up next on The Land and the Book, it's questions. Maybe yours is one of them. Stick around as Charlie rejoins us on The Land and the Book. It's The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, back with our host, Charlie Dyer. And I have to confess, I find this uh, next segment fascinating, Charlie, because there's no end to the curiosity that people have as they read. And these aren't just little factoids, uh, I think, that people are looking for. They genuinely uh, want to know important truths about this thing we call the Bible and how it applies to their lives. So I, I applaud our listeners, Charlie, for digging deep. I do too, John. The teacher in me loves the fact that when people are asking questions, uh, they are trying to find answers, and that gets them deeper into the Word of God. And the more we study, uh, the more fascinating it is. And by the way, the more questions we come up with. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's start with Brian's. He says names seem to be important to God. I've heard that the name Jehovah was a mistranslation of the name Yahweh. Should the song Jehovah Jireh actually be Yahweh Jireh instead? If Jehovah is not God's name, should Christians do more to highlight this as a mistranslation? Uh, Yeah, and I think the mistranslation came about through a series of historical changes. Uh, The most likely pronunciation of the four Hebrew letters Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh was something like Yahweh. Uh, The problem is that ancient Hebrew was written without vowels. People knew which vowels to add based on the context. It would be like seeing the English letters D and R and depending on the context, pronouncing it deer or door or dare or dower. In the early centuries of the Christian era, you know, after the destruction of the temple, a group of Jews called the Masoretes developed a system to add vowel points to the consonants to help in pronunciation. 
That's how in seminary we learned to read the, the Hebrew with those vowel points. But the group created a bit of a confusion. Uh, not wanting to pronounce the four-letter name of God, they substituted the vowels for the Hebrew word Adonai in place of the ones that should have been pronounced for Yahweh. And, and that brings me, John, this is a historical study. Now we have to go to German. The four Hebrew letters were written Y-H-W-H, mm-hmm. but with the vowels for Adonai inserted, and it made it look like Yahowah. In German, the Y sound is written with the letter J, and the letter W is pronounced like a V. That's why in German, the word for yes, you know, J-A-W-O-H-L is pronounced Yavol. Mm-hmm. Now, all that to say, the name Jehovah would have been a reasonable pronunciation of the Hebrew tetragrammaton using the Masoretic supplied words for Adonai if it were being spoken by a German. So, to finally answer the question, the name Jehovah Jireh would probably be pronounced Yahweh Yirah. The Hebrew letter Yod, the Y sound, starts each word. Now, having said that, I don't have a problem using what we've come to accept in our English Bibles. The translators adopted a form similar to that used by the Hebrew Masoretic scribes. You know, instead of pronouncing the name, they used the English word Lord, L-O-R-D, but with the last three letters being small caps. Now, that allows us to identify the specific places where God's unique name, Yahweh, is used. Some Arabic Bibles translate God's name as Allah. This listener says, I've read that many Christians in the Middle East use this translation for God. If Allah is not the name of God, should Christians do more to highlight this as a mistranslation? Now, some Muslims can be drawn in by learning about Allah of the Bible, but should we be more distinct up front about the differences between God and Allah when speaking with Muslims? Yeah, and there is a slight problem here in the sense, first, that the Arabic Allah is equivalent roughly to the Hebrew word El or Elohim, which is the generic name for God. And that was the name used in the Bible to describe the true God of Israel, but it was also used to describe false gods like Dagon and Ashtaroth and Molech and Baal. So using Allah as the generic equivalent of El in that sense, it might be acceptable. However, it's not an appropriate translation for Yahweh or for the other unique and special names for God found in the Bible. And translators need to be very careful not to water down or change the clear presentation of Jesus as God's Son and the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Godhead. The Elohim of the Bible is not the same God as the Allah of the Quran, because the God of the Bible exists in three persons, though he's just one God. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is answering questions that have come in via email. Our address is The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Mike says, I realize that the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. Nevertheless, in looking at the events surrounding the Middle East now, do you think you will be raptured if you live out your life expectancy? And what is your interpretation of the fig tree Jesus was referring to when he told us to watch? I realize I'm asking for pure speculation. I'm just real excited about heaven and being with Jesus. And in answer to the question, I do feel as if Jesus will return in my lifetime. Now, I don't say that because I have some special prophetic insight. Rather, I say it for two reasons. First, I believe that's the attitude God wants us to have. Jesus' return is imminent, meaning he could come at any time. Paul expected the rapture to take place in his lifetime. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul said, The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. That is, Paul put himself in the group that was still going to be alive when Jesus returned. Now, obviously, he died before the event happened, but he was expecting it in his lifetime. 
Uh, Jesus' parable of the fig tree in Matthew 24, to me, that's a reminder that we're to watch what is happening around us to gauge in a broad sense how close these events might be. Uh, Jesus said we won't know the day or the hour, but just before that is when he said to learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, he said, you know summer's getting near. Uh, The next verse then explains the lesson we're to learn from the fig tree. He says, even so, when you see these things, you know that it is near right at the door. God wants us to watch what's happening in the world so we can understand when the world events begin to align with what he said will take place in the end times. Events in Israel and the Middle East are signposts. They help point us toward those times, and it is good to pay attention, Mm -hmm. as long as we also remember to balance that enthusiasm with verse 36 in, in Matthew 24. And again, that's where Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. Right. Well, thank you, Charlie. Eric says on a previous edition of The Land and the Book, one person asked about the belt of truth uh, mentioned in Ephesians 6. Would you please explain the other pieces of armor described in Ephesians 6? I want to know how to use these other pieces of armor. Yeah, and I'd love to. Unfortunately, it would take too long to explain all those pieces of armor in this section. We wouldn't have time for any other questions, but I did address them in a book I I co-wrote with Mark Toby called The ISIS Crisis. At the end of the book, we had a chapter titled God's Battle Plan for Victory, and it actually focuses on the armor of God. Now, in terms of prayer being part of that armor, what I'd say is that Paul doesn't identify prayer as a specific piece of armor uh, when he includes it at the end of the list. Instead, I think he's explaining how to put the pieces of armor into use. Uh, rather than trying to stand against Satan in our own ability, we're to kneel in prayer as we ask for God's wisdom and his strength and his power. Next question. Have you heard of the modern English version translation of the Bible? And if so, how do you like this translation? Yeah, I've not used the modern English version, so I really can't speak to the quality of the translation. But my understanding is that it follows the same Greek and Hebrew manuscripts used by the translators of the original King James Version. So in that sense, it's something like a modern translation of the KJV. However, they didn't just try to modernize the King James Version. It's a genuine translation in that they went back to the original languages. I also believe their goal was to provide as literal a translation of the original texts as possible. So in that sense, they were following the approach adopted by the original translators of the King James Version. But beyond these general observations, I can't really speak to the quality of the translation, but I'd encourage you to check it out. Alex writes, Exodus 33 verse 11 says, The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But then in Exodus 33, verse 20, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Can you please reconcile this for me? Yeah, and I start with this. Both expressions are found in the very same context there in Exodus 33. And because of that, I think we need to start by assuming they don't contradict one another. You know, that is, the writer didn't intend the two phrases to mean something opposite of each other. So the phrase face-to-face it actually occurs about eight times in the Old Testament and another five times in the New Testament. And if you look at all those different uses, I think you see the phrase is a figure of speech. It conveys the idea of having direct communication. Uh, in verse 11, an added explanation is given. You know, he says, just as a man speaks to his friend. Throughout most of the Bible, God communicated to individuals through dreams and visions. He used prophets. He used his, his own word. But in Exodus 33, it says Moses had direct two-way communication with God. But then in verse 20, we're told that doesn't mean Moses could visibly see God. And yet he did have access into God's presence in the tent of meeting, and he could talk with and listen to God 
in open conversation. Charlie, we've got a podcast that uh, a lot of people don't utilize right now and could. Talk about the podcast and why it's so helpful. Yeah, I think it's so helpful for people because, uh, you know, when you listen on the radio and then we love people to do that, but you are stuck at a certain time and place. But if you happen to be out running errands, doing something else and miss the program, it doesn't mean you have to miss it. You can go back now, get the program on podcast and listen to it at your convenience uh, when it fits your schedule. That makes it so much more helpful. You'll find that podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Coming up, it's Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's a highlight for a whole lot of listeners. You don't want to miss it. He's going to nail a place in Scripture to a passage in Scripture, and you'll never forget either one. That's next on The Land and the Book. And welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's written extensively on the Middle East. At one time was a licensed tour guide to Israel. So if it's got to do with Israel, Charlie pretty well knows the answer. He's got a great devotional coming up on the city of Philadelphia in the New Testament, the subject of one of the letters to the seven churches. And uh, before he goes there, we're going to take this look at someone who's been to Israel and now has a different perspective on the Middle East and lots more. Listen to this Holy Land experience. My name is Wally Serafisi. I'm a professor in the missions department at Moody Bible Institute. And in 2008, I had the privilege of going to the Holy Land and And I must say that it really um, has enlivened the scriptures even more to me. I think just the visual aspect of it, being able to visualize, for example, the uh, Sea of Galilee when I'm reading in the Gospels or the uh, synagogue in Capernaum. I think also it's uh, given me insight on uh, maybe some ways in which Jesus taught. I recall when we were in um, Chorazin, we were looking at a large millstone and then we turned our backs and there was the uh, Sea of Galilee behind us. And it made me think of how Jesus rebuked uh, some people uh, regarding their faith and that they needed to uh, put a millstone around their neck and be thrown into the sea. So uh, in a word, it's just alive. It made the scriptures even more alive to me personally. Charlie Dyer now with another in his series on the letters to the churches described in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Where are we headed today, Charlie? Today, we're heading to God's letter to Philadelphia. All right. Philadelphia. It gets this Pennsylvania boy dreaming about Philly cheesesteaks, tasty cake, cakes and pies, water ice, Rocky Balboa, and my beloved Phillies baseball team. Our destination today is Philadelphia, but not that Philadelphia. We're heading to the ancient city of Philadelphia mentioned in Revelation 3. Our 30-mile journey from Sardis to the modern town of Alashahir takes us through a fertile valley and past lush vineyards known for their production of both table grapes and raisins. The city is coming into view, so let me warn you ahead of time, there's not a lot to see archaeologically. A small theater from the Roman period and a few piers from a Byzantine church are about all that's visible. So rather than spending our time looking at them, let's drive up the hill behind the city. It's ancient Acropolis for an overlook of the whole area. Now, I love the view from up here. We can peer down on the modern town, and if you look closely, the remains of the Byzantine church are even visible. But the real advantage is being able to look out toward the horizon. And now you can see that the plain we drove through is actually a broad valley. 
But this valley wasn't formed by erosion. It's actually a geological fault line, one of many in this land. And as beautiful as this city looks from above, there have been times when massive earthquakes have rocked and rolled the entire region. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania might have been founded by Quakers, but ancient Philadelphia was known for its quakes. In fact, the Greek geographer Strabo described the city's somewhat shaky status. The city of Philadelphia is ever subject to earthquakes. Incessantly, the walls of the houses are cracked, different parts of the city being thus affected at different times. A major earthquake so devastated the city in A.D. 17 that Tiberius Caesar relieved the city from having to pay taxes. In gratitude, the city adopted the worship of the Roman emperor as part of its civic life. Now, imagine what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in ancient Philadelphia. The words that might come to mind are uncertainty and instability. These believers lived in a city whose very ground could seemingly turn to jello at any moment, a town whose walls could collapse without warning, and more than that, a town where loyalty and patriotism were synonymous with accepting the deity of Caesar. So what can Jesus write to those from this town who have chosen to follow him, whatever it might cost? Like his earlier letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia is one of warmth and compassion. His words contain no condemnation, no rebuke. Instead, Jesus begins by reminding them that he is the one absolute, unchanging truth of life on which they can depend. He's the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. The church in Philadelphia might have felt small, insignificant, and powerless. Don't get me wrong, they were sold out to Jesus, lived for him, and did all they could for him, but they were an insignificant segment of a struggling town. And they didn't have prestige or power. But what little they had, they devoted to their Lord. It might not have seemed like much, but it didn't go unnoticed. Jesus affectionately commended these followers for their faithfulness. I know your deeds, he writes. Behold, I put before you an open door which no one can shut. They might have felt as if the little they could do for their Lord was so insignificant. But Jesus goes out of his way to express his appreciation. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. In spite of poverty and persecution, these followers of Jesus had committed to stay the course, to remain faithful to their Savior, and Jesus promised them a special reward. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. How are we to understand the solemn promise Jesus is making here? First, the hour of testing he's talking about, the one that he says will come upon the whole world, must refer to the events that unfold in Revelation chapter 6 to 19. In talking about the whole world, Jesus doesn't use the Greek word gay, which refers to the physical ground, or cosmos, which refers to the universe as a whole. Instead, he uses the word oikumene, which refers to the inhabited earth. The phrase is used twice more in the book of Revelation. 
In 12.9, Satan is said to deceive the whole world. And in 16.14, the evil spirits are sent into the whole world to gather the armies at Armageddon. Now, my point here is that Jesus is saying to this group of believers that the time he's referring to is the time of worldwide trouble that will break out in the future tribulation period. It's a time that will experience every evil Satan can muster and that will only end when Jesus returns to earth. But there's one more point we need to note. Jesus tells these faithful followers that he will keep them from the hour of testing. He doesn't say he's going to watch over them through the testing. He says he'll keep them out of the testing. Actually, it's more than that. He says he'll keep them out of the hour when the testing is actually taking place. Imagine you're enrolled in a very hard class in college, and at the end of the semester, there will be a brutal final exam. Now, imagine how you would feel if the professor came up to you one day and said, you've been so faithful in this class and done so well, you don't need to show up for the final exam. By studying hard, you might have been able to make it through the exam, but now you don't even have to show up in class when the exam is being offered. You've been kept out of the hour of testing. And that's what Jesus promises these faithful followers. It's time to head back to the bus. But what can you carry with you from Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia? I'd like to suggest two truths. First, the key characteristic Jesus is looking for in his followers is faithfulness. We're all different. We have different skills and abilities, different gifts, different opportunities. God doesn't expect you to accomplish what he might ask someone else to do. But he does expect you to be faithful and diligent in the time, talents, and treasures he has put under your control. The church in Philadelphia might have felt small and insignificant from a human perspective. But Jesus said they were faithful, and that should be the goal for all of us. Second, Jesus makes it clear that the destiny of his followers is different than that of the world. We might go through times of testing in our own lives, but he promised that none of his followers will go through the ultimate time of testing that will someday engulf the entire world. Instead, Jesus has promised to return for his followers and to take us to be with him in heaven. That's our blessed hope. And his promise is as dependable today as it was when he first gave it to the church in Philadelphia. Good challenge, Charlie, and that issue of faithfulness is certainly something we can all be thinking about. Perspectives from Revelation 3 today on The Land and the Book, where we are now out of time. Hey, want to say thanks to you for joining us and encourage you to visit our website, thelandandthebook.org. We've got online audio, podcasting, guest bios, and lots more, including a link to Charlie's blog and Facebook page, thelandandthebook.org. Let's say a quick thank you to Charlie Dyer, our host, and to Dan Anderson, our producer. I'm John Gager. See you back next week for The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.